Well, as you know, if you've been with us and as uh, Jeff just prayed, we are working our way through the book of Daniel. Daniel is a prophet found in the Old Testament, and uh, we have worked our way through the first three chapters last week covering the amazing story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that many of you probably are familiar with. This morning, we begin chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first three verses, and you'll find out why in a moment. Uh, But if you have a Bible with you, then I would encourage you to open it up to uh, Daniel chapter 4 and read along as I read. And if you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, if you look in the chair in front of you, underneath you'll find a Bible there, and our passage will be in that Bible on page 740. Daniel chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs! How mighty his wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, these three verses have had uh, an interesting uh, history, uh, textually speaking, in church history. Uh, If you read a Hebrew Bible, you will find that these three verses are, rather than being the first three verses of chapter 4, they're the last three verses of chapter 3. It's as though the the compilers of the Hebrew Bible uh, thought that Nebuchadnezzar's praise here that we read at the first three verses of chapter 4 really belonged uh, after the miraculous uh, release and salvation that he witnessed with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that makes sense. It makes sense that, and especially given the fact that that we see him in here say, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages, which if you just go back in chapter 3, that was in fact who he commanded to bow down to his golden idol. However, as you see in our translation here, uh, and, and also in many texts throughout church history, uh, compilers have thought, in fact, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's statement here belongs as the first three verses of chapter 4. And the reason they think it belongs there is because they think that what we're seeing here is actually a prelude to what's going to happen in chapter 4. That basically what what we see here is is Nebuchadnezzar giving this praise to the God of heaven, which he will then explain in chapter 4 how he has been transformed to come to this conclusion that he puts at the start of chapter 4. It's interesting, as, as I was reading this text this week, Uh, One of the things I decided to do was to read it in my ESV Reader's Bible. Now, the ESV Reader's Bible has 
no chapter or verse numbers in it. So it reads just like a novel would. Uh, and so as I read it in that, it, I couldn't decide where it fit. <laughs> it was odd. I thought, well, I'll read here and then that'll become clear. And uh, when I read it, I thought, you know, it's weird, it's interesting, but this seems almost like it fits with both chapters. And the reason that I thought so is because Nebuchadnezzar here, I think the key is verse 2. Because he says here, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Now, I do think technically if I had to choose one, it's the beginning of, verse, uh, the beginning of chapter 4, that basically Nebuchadnezzar is giving us a preview of what's going to happen in chapter 4. He's extolling the transformation that has happened in his own heart, which we will see when we get to chapter 4. But the, the thing that makes me question or, or think that he's reflecting on things that happen in past chapters is that he talks about these signs and wonders. And when you read chapter 4, as we will, there's really no signs and wonders that happen in that chapter. And so what it seems like he's doing is just like so many who come to faith, and I'm, I'm showing my cards here, I, I think there's a good indication that King Nebuchadnezzar actually comes to faith in the God of Israel by the end of chapter 4. And what you see with so many people who come to faith, and in fact, this is probably true for maybe all of you in this room if you're a Christian, is that when you come to faith, and you realize that your life has been transformed by God, you begin to look over the past experiences of your life, and you see in those experiences how God was planting seeds, and how through these experiences, He led you to the place where you are now. And I think what Nebuchadnezzar is doing in, in talking about these signs and wonders that God did for him is he's looking back at the things, the miraculous things that we've already read that have now for him become seeds that were planted in his life by these men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What I think is maybe the most unbelievable thing about these verses here is that it is King Nebuchadnezzar who's saying them. I mean, if we were to erase his name and just read these verses, you would think that it's Daniel saying these things. You would think that maybe it's even Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego. I mean, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seems good to me to show the signs and wonders that the God, Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs. How great His wonders. His kingdom is everlasting. His dominion doors from generation to generation. This was the man who invaded Jerusalem and stole the vessels from the house of God to put in his temple in the land of Shinar when we first met him now extolling and praising the God of heaven. Well, I think that one of the ways we can see this as we go back over, and that is my intent today. Next week, we will go forward in chapter 4, but one of the things I want to do today, it's a little odd, but I want us to see again those signs and wonders 
but seen as disruptive witnesses uh, used in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. This transformation that, that takes place in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, and it's interesting too, if you just read chapters one through four of Daniel, obviously the book of Daniel, the whole book, really focuses on Daniel. That's why it's called Daniel. But in chapters one through four, it's interesting that the only character, if you will, that's in all four chapters is actually Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel doesn't even appear in chapter three, so it, and chapter four is going to be the last time we see Nebuchadnezzar as chapter five moves in time beyond his reign and into the reign of another king of Babylon. And so it almost seems like in one sense you could, you could look at chapters one through four as the, the transformation of King Nebuchadnezzar and what happens to him. Now, when I say that these men and these things that occur are disruptive witnesses to Nebuchadnezzar, I, I, I should uh, define that for you. I don't mean that Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are disruptive witnesses in that they came to Babylon with the intent to disrupt the nation, that they came to Babylon with some intent to be anarchists, as, as I've already uh, explained in a, in a couple of sermons. No, they knew that their calling, based on what God had told them to do, was to go to Babylon, and again, they didn't choose to go there, they were exiled there by Nebuchadnezzar's invasion, but that while they were there, they were to be the best of citizens. That while they were there, they were to be, as I have defined, ambassadors for God. However, the fact that they were living in Babylon, the fact that they were now living in exile, meant that there were going to be times when their service to God was going to be disruptive to the status quo in Babylon. And I think we too, as, as we have talked about us living in exile here in America, yes, we're citizens of this country from a worldly standpoint, and, and you know, we, there's nothing to be ashamed about that, but the Scripture says that our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And when Scripture writes to any Christian, it writes to us as people who are in exile. No matter what era of church history or what, uh, what country or what city any Christian lives in. We too, the fact that we are living in Babylon or living in exile means that there are going to be times, even if we try to be the best of citizens, there are going to be times when our service to God will disrupt the status quo, just as happens with these men. Now, I got the title, Disruptive Witness, from a book, actually. It's a book by a man named Alan Noble. And I'm going to quote him. He says this, A disruptive witness is the kind of witness that we are called to bear in the world today, a witness that defies secular expectation it defies secular explanation. It unsettles our neighbors from their technological and consumerist stupor. It gambles everything on the existence and goodness of a transcendent and imminent God whose sacrificial love for us compels us to love in return. 
That's what a disruptive witness is. And, and as we go back over these previous chapters, we'll see, I think, in both their words and in their actions, these men at times were used by God to be disruptive witnesses. Now, again, as chapter 1 opens, King Nebuchadnezzar doesn't know anything, as far as we know, about the God of Israel. He's the Babylonian king, he's conquered the known world, and uh, the king in Judah has rebelled against him for some stupid reason, and so the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, with all of his might, decides to go in and show who's boss. He carries away the best and the brightest, again, including Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and carries them off in exile to Babylon, along with, again, these vessels from the house or the temple of God. And when he does that, as you may recall uh, from the first sermon that I preached, what he was saying ultimately is that whoever this God of Israel is, I'm greater than he is. I was able to infiltrate his temple, I was able to carry off his people, and I was able to take his vessels from his temple and place them in mine, because he's nothing, and my gods are greater, and I am greater. That is the, the Nebuchadnezzar that we meet. And, and what does he do with these exiles? Well, he places them again into a, uh, essentially a, a, a university and, and a culture and a mindset and, and given instruction to brainwash them, to, to turn them into faithful Babylonian citizens. At the end of chapter 1, we see him examine them and, and ask them questions, and he finds out that these, these uh, four boys have done stellar work, that they're getting all the answers right, and as far as he's concerned, I'm sure, they've been totally assimilated. They've been transformed into Babylonians and good citizens for him. But the problem is that at this point, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't really know what's going on with these boys. He, he thinks they're fully assimilated. He thinks he'll have no problem with them, but God has other plans for him. His life in Babylon is about to be disrupted by the God of heaven through the lives of these men. In chapter 2, we see God begin this transformation. He begins it with a dream. This whole thing goes back, I mean, really, if you, if you think of it, the whole transformation of Nebuchadnezzar goes back even to God handing over the vessels and handing over those in exile. I mean, God was sovereign even over that. But if you want to get to a place where Scripture is really specific, it says that God gives Nebuchadnezzar this dream, this dream that terrifies him, that he has over and over and over again. And again, he calls his wise men to him, and, and what is it that they tell him? When he says, I want to know what this dream means, they say to him, there is not a man on earth who can answer this. Now, that was true as far as it went for the Babylonians. As far as they were concerned, only the gods could answer this question, and as they said, the gods do not dwell with men. Well, again, that was true as far as they knew. And the result was that Nebuchadnezzar is infuriated and, as he is wont to do, decides he wants to tear people limb from limb. So, 
Daniel is now caught up in this. Daniel becomes a target for Nebuchadnezzar, and it opens the door, God opens the door for Daniel to be a disruptive witness in the kingdom of Babylon, because it opens the door for Daniel to tell the king something that he hadn't heard before, something about the God of heaven. By God's providence, Daniel is brought before the king, and the king speaks to Daniel and asks him essentially the same question, are you able to make known to me the dream? Now, Daniel, technically speaking, I think, could have simply answered, yes, I am able to answer the dream. After all, God uses Daniel to give the answer. It's not as though God's writing the answer in the sky. Daniel, in one sense, wouldn't really be lying to say, yes, I am able to answer, knowing inside, in his heart and mind, that it's God who's given him the answer. But he doesn't. He doesn't say that. Instead, he decides to put the focus on God rather than on himself. He decides to introduce Nebuchadnezzar to the God of heaven. At first, Daniel's answer is the same as that of the Chaldeans, exactly the same. And I think that was risky because he already knows Nebuchadnezzar wants to kill anyone who doesn't have the answer. So what does Daniel say? King Nebuchadnezzar, look, no, no human being, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no astrologer can show the mystery that the king has asked. They're right about that. Your, your Chaldeans are right so far as it goes. But, and here's the important caveat, but, Daniel says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. I can picture Nebuchadnezzar about to have his limbs, have Daniel torn limb from limb, and then being put on hold. I remember, <coughs> I remember in college, I've shared this before, uh, I think, but uh, so bear with me if you've heard this before. But, uh, but I remember in college, I, I, I was sitting out having lunch with a, a girl uh, in, in my Greek class, and, uh, and she was, uh, was, was a non-Christian, I think even kind of an ardent atheist, and uh, we were sitting there having lunch. She knew I was a Christian. She knew I was preparing maybe one day to go to seminary, and, uh, and so we, we started talking about right and wrong and sin and that kind of thing. And she pointed to a specific group of students that had a display set up in, in this kind of courtyard area, and she said, uh, well, what about them? Are they sinners? And I said, yes. And she immediately got this fire in her eyes, uh, and I, you know, like she wanted to tear my head off, until I followed it up by saying, but no worse than I am. And suddenly she paused and she said, what do, what do you mean by that? And then I started telling her, not only are they no worse sinner than I am, but in fact, I'm the worst sinner I know. I said, I don't know what their thoughts are. I don't know what their intentions are. All I can see are their outward actions. I know every thought and intention I ever have. It was interesting that by the end of our conversation, she was defending me 
By the end of our conversation, she was saying, no, 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 you're not that bad of a person. And I kept saying, yes, I am. I'm worse than you think. So it was this oddball, like 180 that the conversation took. But because I was able to bring in something that she had never heard up till that point, I'm assuming, any Christian say. What she had heard up till that point is that there are sinners out there. She hadn't heard a Christian say, and I'm one of them, saved by grace. Daniel says, look, no man can answer you, but there is a God in heaven. And for the first time, Nebuchadnezzar hears that a God in heaven exists. And Daniel, Daniel goes on to to explain to him a little bit about this God. You see, Nebuchadnezzar, this God is transcendent. He's not like your idols. He is the God who gave you the dream. He is the God, in fact, who's given you everything you have. He's made you who you are. But this God is not only transcendent and and, and above uh, all powers on earth, but but he is imminent. He is involved in the the day-to-day lives of of every person on earth. And in fact, this God is so imminent that he is going to set up on earth his own kingdom one day. I'm sure that intrigued Nebuchadnezzar to to no end. I mean, this, this God, who is this God of heaven? And Daniel made in his answer everything about the God of heaven and nothing about himself. Here, Daniel was the one giving the answer. He could have built himself up. He could have made himself the answer to all of Nebuchadnezzar's problems. But instead, he said, look, I'm no wiser than anyone else. The only reason I'm even able to tell you this is because the God in heaven has revealed it to me. I am nothing. Interestingly, with this massive disruption into the nice, neat Babylonian worldview that Nebuchadnezzar had had up until that point, that's now been shaken by the knowledge that there's this God in heaven, I'm sure Nebuchadnezzar could have reacted any any sort of way. I mean, Daniel still could have been torn limb, limb from limb, for all we know. But... While Daniel was essentially telling Nebuchadnezzar that the God whose vessels he took is actually the God who rules him, Nebuchadnezzar's heart was changed. As we know, he fell down. He basically had nothing but praise for Daniel. He fell on his face, paid homage to him. He commanded that an offering and an incense be offered up to him. You can see here how Nebuchadnezzar's kind of messed up. He's on the one hand, praising the God of heaven. On the other hand, he's, he's giving offerings to Daniel and worshiping the man. So he doesn't quite have his theology down, Pat, but it's begun. There's this intrusion that's began in his life. And he says to Daniel, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you've been able to reveal this mystery. On the one hand, He acknowledges that the God of heaven is God of gods and Lord of kings. And yet it's interesting that he is not yet Nebuchadnezzar's God. Although he's this great God of heaven, he's still Daniel's God. Daniel, your God is amazing, Daniel. Now, sometimes... 
The Lord gives us, as he gave me with that girl in my class, he gives us opportunity to use words. Now, we are not prophets like Daniel, none of us. That, that age, the age of the prophet and the age of the apostle who also spoke the words of God, has been closed. It was closed once the apostle John died. Now we have all the words we ever need from God inscripturated in this book. We have plenty of prophetic words that we can use for our culture. And sometimes God gives us the opportunity to be, in a sense, modern-day prophets. Not, again, like Daniel or like the apostles, but like any Christian who can open up God's Word and speak to our culture and speak truths that are found here that are a disruptive witness to the nice uh, worldview and nice cushy life that a lot of Americans have built up around themselves. Charles Taylor, who wrote a book called The Secular Age, he speaks of this thing called the buffered self. And he says that the buffered self is basically the way our modern-day neighbors, and, and oftentimes we, uh, live. We live in this buffered self. He says that, that they imagine themselves, as a quote, imagine themselves to be insulated from forces outside of their rational mind, particularly supernatural or transcendent forces. So basically, uh, and, and as Noble in his book, Disruptive Witness, he says, you know, a lot of our neighbors, they distract them. The buffered self that they create is by distracting themselves with nonstop tech, technolo technology and social media and that kind of thing. They don't want to think about any kind of transcendent or supernatural answer to things. And like Daniel, if Taylor is correct, if we are living around people that have built up this buffered self so that they don't have to think about transcendent and supernatural causes of things, then we, like Daniel, have the opportunity to be a disruptive witness to that buffered self. We have a book that tells us that, in fact, everything that exists is caused by a transcendent and supernatural being. While our neighbors can't imagine that anything happens outside of the natural realm. We know that in Christ, we live and move and have our being. That what is visible has cre been created by what is invisible. <coughs> now, chapter 3 opens rather starkly based on chapter 2's ending. Because chapter 2, again, ends with Nebuchadnezzar bowing down and, and, and proclaiming how great this God is, and then chapter 3 has him building an idol and commanding everyone to bow down to this idol. And when we read chapter 3, we see that God creates again another opportunity for now other men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to be a disruptive witness. Because when Nebuchadnezzar sets up this golden idol and plays the music and commands everyone to bow down and worship, what do people do? Well, everyone immediately falls down and worships. 
Now, we can ask ourselves why. Why did they bow down so quickly and worship a God that they've never heard of before and and an idol that they've never seen? Perhaps two reasons is one, Babylonian culture was polytheistic and pagan, which meant that you can worship your God and many gods. It didn't matter. So this was just one more God to bow down and worship. But I think another reason is just simply self-preservation. Self-preservation was in, in that day, just like it is in our day, a great motivation for doing things. When you have a horrific death staring you in the face, if you don't do a certain thing, you're pretty prone to do that thing, to avoid death. And these people were threatened with immediate and horrific death that, that, that they knew Nebuchadnezzar would have no hesitation to do. Up until that point, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had been appointed at the end of chapter 2 to uh, pretty high positions of power in Nebuchadnezzar's government, up till that point, they probably looked like every, every other Babylonian. I mean, I don't know. We're, we're, not, we're not told all the, all the discussions they may have had with their co-workers about the God of heaven or whatever. We don't know. But as I said and before in the sermon that I preached on this, I, I almost wonder and kind of think that they probably had something to do with, maybe even a lot to do with the building of the idol itself because they were the ones in charge of all affairs of the province of Babylon. So up until they were told they have to bow down to it, They just looked like every other Babylonian. But Nebuchadnezzar had to take one more step. I not only want you to build this idol, but now I want you to bow down and worship it. That, by God's providence, gave them a chance to be a disruptive witness. They were carried to Nebuchadnezzar for not obeying his orders, and just like he had asked Daniel, he asked them a question. Is it true that you don't bow down and worship my God that I have set up? Up till this point, I'm sure that the God of heaven, especially given what happens in chapter 2, that the God of heaven had been given a place by Nebuchadnezzar in the pantheon of gods. He was probably now an option that you could worship. And so he's asking them, I don't, I don't understand. You know, you, I, I have your God out here to worship. What, why, why won't you bow down and worship mine as well? Now, you see, sometimes our words, even if we speak prophetically, or even if we are uh, think we're being a disruptive witness by our words, they can be misunderstood by our culture. I mean, up till that point, let's say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had told every co-worker that they, that they were working with, we serve and worship the God of heaven. What would that have been interpreted by, the, by their co-workers? They would have interpreted as, oh, you guys are polytheistic just as we are, only you just have this God in addition to that. They wouldn't have known up till that point what worshiping the God of heaven actually meant, which is that we worship him and no other God. And this is where God gives them an opportunity. God gives them an opportunity to live in such a way that their neighbors will think that their actions are crazy 
and insane unless there really is a God like they claim. And they answer with their words, look, Nebuchadnezzar, we, our God is the sovereign and almighty God. He's, he's the transcendent and imminent God. He's the one who is able. He has all power. He's able to deliver us from the fire, but Nebuchadnezzar, he may not. They were able to add onto this knowledge of who the God of heaven is that they are unworthy sinners, that God does not owe them salvation. If they are given justice, they're, get, they're, they're going to be given the fiery furnace. If they're given grace, they'll be saved. And, and they say, he, he may save us, but even if He doesn't, we're not going to bow down. They add this truth that God is a Savior, but that He saves by grace alone, not by any merit that they have. Now, how does Nebuchadnezzar react? Well, <clears throat> he doesn't react as well as he do does to Daniel's proclamation. He certainly doesn't bow down and worship Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They get cast into the burning, fiery furnace. But you see, God gave them the opportunity to not only speak words of truth, but to live in such a way that I'm sure everyone else around them thought they were crazy until they were delivered in front of their eyes. I can't imagine how, how crazy they must have seen. Why in the world, people were probably thinking, why in the world would anyone not bow down? It doesn't make any sense. Look, I mean, it's You'd have to be insane to choose a burning, fiery furnace when you could just add one more God to the 30 you already worship. What are you doing? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego showed them that their God was more important to them than life itself. Charles Taylor says this, for many people today, they set aside, to set aside their own path. People choose their own path. They have their own way, the way that they want to live life. And to set aside their own path in order to conform to some external authority, it doesn't seem comprehensible to people today. <clears throat> Alan Noble says this, what we intend to be a persuasive proclamation of the gospel, if we make it, may instead be interpreted by our neighbor as an expression of our identity, just like any other dialogue in modern culture. To them, when they hear that you're a Christian, it's about you publicly defining yourself as a Christian because it gives you a certain sense of personal fulfillment. That's what they're hearing when they hear that you're a Christian. So God might give us a chance to act in such a way that to our neighbors will seem insane unless the God that we proclaim actually exists. To our neighbors, so often self-preservation right now and self-fulfillment is the God that they are pursuing above all else. I remember reading an article. I don't even know why I read this. I don't even know how I stumbled upon this. It's not something I would usually care about at all. But I read an article uh, where it's an interview with Adele, and, uh, and she was talking about her upcoming 
an impending divorce. And she actually stated, this is what blew me away, she actually stated that she knew that this divorce was going to dismantle her son's entire life. But she said, it's worth it so that I can pursue my own happiness. She was willing to dismantle her son's entire life so that she could pursue her journey to find true happiness. That, that's what so many of our neighbors today are living their lives like. That is what is foremost in their mind. What is going to give me true happiness? And what does Scripture say? Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, Christian, what situations, I mean, Jeff just prayed this in the, in the pastoral prayer, of, of the ways that we can be different than this world? What situations might God put you in in order for you to demonstrate by your actions that there is something greater than self-fulfillment to be living for? What situations might God put you in in order for you to demonstrate by your actions that you think Jesus is more valuable than all the world? Where might you be able to do this? At school or on social media, maybe interacting with your neighbor, maybe in the way that you treat your spouse or in your willingness to repent of sin and forgive one another. Well, what did all of these disruptive witnesses produce in the life of Nebuchadnezzar? By the end of chapter 3, after Nebuchadnezzar has seen these signs and wonders, at the end of chapter 3, he now knows that the God of heaven is God of gods and Lord of kings. He now knows that the God of heaven is a revealer of mysteries. He now knows that the God of heaven is a God who saves. And yet, at the end of chapter 3, this God is still the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He is not yet his God. What's missing is what happens in chapter 4. What's missing is a personal humbling of Nebuchadnezzar by the God of heaven. Until after that humbling, this God of heaven becomes his God, which we will see. But the seeds have been sown. That's the point. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, the seeds that will bear fruit in chapter 4 have been sown time and again. And Christian, the more that our society looks like Babylon, I know I have spoken to many of you in pastoral settings, and many of you are feeling this pressure because you're you're feeling this pressure because our society, it seems, is pulling away from the things of God and, and is imposing on you things that are antithetical to Scripture, and so you kind of feel like you're in a vice. And so often we see this happening, and I know, because again, I've talked to you, that, that we think it's all bad, that we think that, that the things that are happening are only bad, but think about it. 
When you think that way, you're at least in part thinking of self-preservation. If you think that the way our society going is only bad, it's because in part you liked the nice life that you were living before the hardship arrived. But what you can see as an opportunity is that the more that our society begins to look like Babylon, the, more it, the, the less it will take for you to stand out the less it will take for you to be a disruptive witness. You don't have to do much today to stand out. Believe it or not, one of the best ways you can be a disruptive witness is by being here on Sunday morning. When Michelle and I lived uh, about uh, before arriving here uh, over 10 years ago, we lived for a while in, in a townhouse complex and Every other day of the week, all the cars would be gone from in front of the house. There'd be a smattering of cars left. Even on Saturday, all the cars would be gone. More, a few more would be there. On Sunday, when we left for church, every car was in front of every house. Ours was, seemed like the only one that left to go somewhere on Sunday morning. When I come here in the summer... You'll see them. You'll see the soccer fields loaded with soccer players while we come here and pass by to worship our Lord and God. Alan Noble, I'll just conclude with this. He says, the greatest witness to the world will always be the body of Christ gathered to worship. When our unbelieving neighbors see or visit our church, they should witness a spiritual gathering of saints worshiping a living and holy God. The practice of attending church weekly and moving through the cycle of Christ's birth, life, crucifixion, death, and resurrection reorients us. And it reminds us that there is a way of being in the world that is truer than the sense of life we have within the imminent frame. You see, as long as we are living in exile, Christian, you and I have the same temptation to go right down the road of self-fulfillment and self-preservation and all of these things. And so we need to be reoriented ourselves every week to what Christ did. When we think of who the ultimate disruptive witness that this world has ever seen it was not Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, or Daniel. It was our Lord Jesus Christ, whose scripture said, did something that is crazy to every person that hears it, unless you understand the mission that he was on. Scripture says that for the joy that was set before him, he went to the cross. And that's what we gather when we gather on Sunday morning and when we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper.